John chapter 6, verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray together again. Father, we do ask that you would speak and that we would hear and we know that your speech is perfect for you are a perfect God we are not and so we ask that your spirit would move in us that we might hear and understand and believe in the son Lord may it be that we see Jesus and we love him and believe in the son we pray in his name amen The Atkins diet ruined John chapter (laughs) 6. 
Okay, I mean, maybe that's an overstatement a little bit, but not by much. And not really ruining John 6, I guess it's more of it ruined us. But in case you don't know what it is, the Atkins diet was kind of the first of these fad diets that have come out now, which say carbs are bad and protein is good. And it hasn't ruined John 6, because John 6 is perfect, but it has ruined, in many ways, how we come to a book like John 6, as we exist in a culture that constantly is reminding us that carbs are bad. They're not. But our culture tells us so. It's going to make us little sense when we have Jesus say, I'm the bread of life, if we think of bread as a bad thing. In fact, actually, a probably healthier view would be as some of us in here whose bread is the favorite thing at the meal. Watched a young person in the last week actually pass over dessert so he could have another roll. Love bread, to be excited about bread. That would have been far more common in the era. And you think about it, it makes sense. Protein is good. Helps us kind of stay strong and be mighty. Vegetables are good. They help keep us healthy and robust. Bread is what keeps us from starving to death. Now, for most of us, that's not an issue. We have enough money in the bank account or a credit card. We can go to the store and buy food anytime we need. But in a culture where food is very difficult to come by, fairly expensive, and requires immense amounts of work, bread is the king dish. It keeps you from starving to death. It helps you keep the pounds on that you need so you don't die. It helps you not feel hungry all the time. It keeps you from feeling miserable. It keeps you as a functional human. We come to this passage, and the sermon next week, I'm setting you up for that one, to deal with Jesus as the bread of life. He is the one who makes life enjoyable to live. He is the one who keeps us from starving to death. He is the mighty bread from heaven. But before we look at bread from heaven, we have to see the context of the passage as context is almost always important and certainly in the Gospels extremely significant. John has started telling us the story of the bread of life at the beginning of chapter 6. In the beginning of chapter 6, we we kind of fast forward in Jesus' ministry a year. He's started to gather crowds, and here in 6, he takes a crowd of 5,000 men, probably looking at 12,000 total, more or less, somewhere in the neighborhood, give or take a couple of thousand takes them out into a slightly less populated place. He teaches, he preaches, and then eventually he feeds them from next to nothing. He takes a couple of fish, a handful of loaves of barley bread, which they would have considered not really fully fit for human consumption. Only the poorest of the poor would eat that. He miraculously and supernaturally multiplies it so that he's able to feed them all. And the crowd would respond the way that I would say most crowds would respond if you're really hungry and you encounter a source of free food. I mean, think about it this way. We actually react with free food similarly, and we're not hungry most of the time. 
They are hungry. They're starving. They're needy. And they found a free meal. And so, of course, you're going to ride that horse as long as you can. You're going to get as much food as you possibly can. You're going to make sure that if there's free food, I'm taking my fill. It's an ancient Near Eastern buffet that you don't pay for. Now, as he's set the stage, he's fed them. They're hungry. They're looking for food. They're looking for another free meal. He has sent his disciples away. He's waited, and then he's walked out on the water in the midst of the storm. He steps into the boat. The waves stop. Peter walks on water, and then the boat is teleported to the far shore in the morning. Yeah, I would love to see the kind of sober unloading of that boat. They kind of got on the boat and they're all excited and kind of jacked up. Like, Jesus just fed like 10,000 people. That's amazing. And they get all out there and then they row all night long out to the middle of the lake. And like, oh, we're not even halfway there in the storm. And I'm going to heave because of the motion sickness. And this is miserable. And then all of a sudden they think there's a ghost and then Jesus is there. And then they're terrified. Because they realize that this teacher who uh, does neat party tricks like turning water into wine and making food out of next to nothing, he's actually the Lord of creation. You've got to think that, that rest of that time, they embarked like pretty quietly. I remember in lab, preaching lab, one of my professors, we had a, a gentleman who was struggling particularly, and the professor was unusually constructive for him and actually made the gentleman cry. He needed it. It was good for him. He's a PCA minister now and has flourished absolutely because of it. But as we all walked out of the classroom, having watched our peer cry for the last 25 minutes, we all walked out very quietly. Not because of him, but because of the professor. We understood a a slighter glimpse of the power and the might of the professor who with just a matter of sentences can unmake you in front of your peers. They have understood Christ to be the same. He is the Lord of wind. He is the Lord of waves. He is the Lord of the sea. And oh, wow. And they un load the boat and you think again probably fairly reserved they don't even show up in this conversation the crowd looks for Jesus they can't find him they figure out where he is they track him down get boats of their own and they show up and this entire interchange here that we're going to look at is formatted with a series of questions They ask a question, Jesus provides the correct answer. They ask the wrong question, Jesus provides the correct answer. They ask the wrong question. First question they come to, verse 25. Rabbi, when did you come here? I love this. This is one of those questions that it's it's a red herring, a false flag. It's a, we're going to ask this and have no intention of actually caring about what that is. When did you come here? How did you get They don't care. Where did you go? I want food. How did you get away from all of us? Because we were trying to stay as close as we possibly could to you. We were trying to keep food near us. Where did you go? I'm sure they're a bit... Curious, but not much more than that. 
And Jesus responds, interestingly, asking not the question that they asked, but asking the question that they meant to ask. It was like Christmas this year. The children come up to you and, when are we going home from church? We're opening presents at three. Right? It's that same kind of interaction of, they're asking one question, but that's not at all what they mean. So Jesus gives them the right answer. When are we going home from church? You don't mean that. You want open presents. Where did you get here? You're not concerned about that. You want food. So Jesus begins and addresses them, addresses their heart question, addresses the thing they really mean and what is his answer. I say to you, you're looking for me. But you're not looking for me because you believe in me. You're not looking for me because you find me to be great. You're not looking for me because I can turn water into wine and I command the wind and the waves. You're looking for me. You're looking for me because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're looking for me because your belly has gotten hungry again. You ate yesterday and you ate your fill and you were full. But guess what? It's now morning and you want another meal. So you have gone looking for one who can give it to you. Jesus does not leave them with that, though. He, he corrects their thinking and then begins to highlight one important like nature fact about humanity. He, he highlights the very essence of what it means to be human, human in a fallen world, and that is we are always lacking in our own ability. It's always fun to watch Thanksgiving. You can eat a meal like you've never, I mean, you can be amazed at how much food you've eaten. And three hours later, still find yourself snacking. How? Where is the room gone? Where did you fit that? Where are you going to fit the new food? What happens? It's because we don't stay contented. We constantly diminish and we're hungry again. We don't stay satisfied in our own abilities. Now, Jesus is speaking of bread. But the reality is that's not just true for bread. It's true for all humans in all walks of life, in all areas of life left to our own ends. In fact, actually, it's true to the very nature of sin that it's never satisfying and it's never enough. We constantly find ourselves trying new things to seek a little bit of satisfaction. Finding greater quantities of things to find a little bit of satisfaction. Leaving old things, trying new things just to try to find a moment of satisfaction. Look at how our culture is operating. Look at the adult industry. I'll leave it at that with the ears we have. And how it's an entire industry built, about, built on dissatisfaction. Constantly trying to provide newer and more heinous things to satisfy people. Jesus addresses this and explains, look, you are just looking to have your stomach filled, verse 26, verse 27. The, the thing you need to understand, though, is you're missing the point of what it means to be human. You're laboring for the things that won't actually last, verse 27. Don't labor for the food that perishes. Instead, find the food that doesn't. The food the Son of Man will give to you. 
the one that God has chosen. And you know, for them, that had to have been unbelievably appealing. And the reality of the matter is, I don't long for food that fills me up forever. And the reason being is because I have good food all the time. I'm going to eat at least two more good meals today, at least, maybe three. (laughs) Tomorrow, I'm going to have more good food waiting for me then. And the next day, unless the Lord changes something in my life, I will have good food waiting for me. I actually like not getting full because then I can have more food later. But that honestly shows the fact that I'm coming from a culture where I have too much food. For people who know genuine hunger, who know what it's like to not have food, the idea of food that fills forever would be the most appealing thing of all time. We can think older folks in the room, those of you that wake up every day and you hurt. The idea of waking up with no pain and knowing it would never hurt again. My goodness, that would be appealing, wouldn't it? For those with young children, to wake up and know you'll never be tired again. How appealing would that be? It would be a great thing, wouldn't it? Like, oh, I'm never going to be tired again. This is fantastic. No more bags under the eyes. That's in essence what Jesus confronts them with to say, look, you're laboring for the things that are going to continue to diminish. They're going to continue to go away. You're never going to have enough of them. Look for the thing that doesn't go away. And they're like, that, that sounds great. And so they ask another question. And again, they ask the wrong question. Then they said to him, verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What they mean is, how do we get this bread? What they mean is, how do I get myself a condition where I'm not going to wake up tired every day? What they mean is, what do we have to do to make you happy enough to give it to me? This is the question that every child comes out of the womb equipped to ask. What must I do to manipulate mom and dad into giving me what I want? That's what they're asking. How do we manipulate King Jesus into giving us this bread? And it's interesting, the assumption that they have is, what do we have to do? How do we get said bread? How do we get the bread that doesn't leave us hungry? How do we get to be in a condition where we're satisfied in life? How do we get contentment? What do we have to do to be content? And you have to understand, at this point in Jewish history, they've so distorted the Old Testament that they genuinely believe the way that you attain eternal life and the way that you attain eternal happiness and the way that you attain blessedness now is by working harder and being gooder. I know that's not a word. (laughs) By being better. By being more holy, by following the rules more perfectly, that's how you go to heaven. That's how you get God's blessing. And they're asking Jesus, okay, what rules do you want us to follow? We don't care. We'll do them. Just give us food. We just watched the old Willy Wonka with the kids. One of my favorite movies. We did fast forward the boat scene. If you've watched that movie anytime recently, you remember the boat scene. But there is the one great interaction 
with the one spoiled brat of a little girl and the dad who constantly tries to make her happy with his checkbook and the interesting conversations that he has, his solution to everything is, okay, how much will it cost? How much do I have to give you in order for you to give me whatever she wants? And they are, in essence, trying to bargain with God the same way. How much is it going to cost me to get the bread of life? What do you want me to do? How much is the check going to be? What rules do you want me to follow? What sacrifice do I need to make? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to be in order to get this? You see, the problem that they're, they're missing, they're absolutely missing it, is they still think they can satisfy themselves. They still think that it's within their power to make themselves content, to make themselves whole. And so it's just a matter of their checklist of doing. It's still inside them. It's still their ability. It's still their effort. It's still their credit. It's a thing, once they get it, they're gone. Because it's theirs. Again, Jesus, (laughs) perfect. Jesus answers the right question. Well, what do you do? How do you get this bread? How do you come to have satisfaction and contentment? Well, verse 29, Jesus answers them, this is the work of God. This is the rule. This is what you have to do. You have to believe in him who he sent. You just believe in Jesus. You believe in the Messiah. You believe that God the Father sent his son to die for his people, to redeem him, to provide contentment and satisfaction. And God gives it all. The fancy theological term is justification by grace. That God gives his people that there is mercy to be found in Christ. Jesus undoes all of their excuses, undoes all of their line of reasoning, undoes all of their hopes as they're trusting in self. And he says, you want to know how to be content. You want to know how to be made whole. You want to know how to be able to sleep well at night without those niggling doubts and all of those things that bother you. You want to know the answer? Trust in Christ. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop looking for solutions inside yourself. You're not the answer. You're the problem. Trust in King Jesus. He will be the one who provides the solution. And honestly, I I recognize part of the beauty of Christianity is that it is so simple. Biblical Christianity, it is so simple, it actually sounds like a trick. You mean all I have to do is literally believe in the Lord Jesus and he gives me all needful things? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's so unbelievably simple. And in the midst of that simplicity, they come back with what I think has to be the dumbest question in human history. I I really have a tough time thinking of a dumber question. People say there are no dumb questions. No, that's not true. This is one of them. So they say to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Oh, man. Why are you following him in the first place? 
Oh, because he's this incredibly wise rabbi that you want to hear him talk because he's doing works that no one else can do. And they've heard stories about his healings at this point. And they've heard stories about his casting out demons. And they've had heard all of the various rumors of the land about this man. And then, oh, by the way, he just fed 10,000 of you with just, you know, a few loaves and fish. Oh, and then he somehow kind of sort of magically disappeared from the region while surrounded in a crowd of 10,000 people. How do you do that? Oh, you walk on water across the lake. That's, that's, that's how you do that. It's astonishing that their response, if you actually look at the core of it, is what makes you so worthy to be trusted? Who are you to think that you, Jesus, can provide satisfaction for me? Who are you to think that you know my soul, that you can fix my insides? Who are you? Give me proof that I can believe. Take the scariness out of it. Take the faith out of it. Take the belief out of it. It's interesting, their very question is at its core undoing the thing he's just commanded them to do. Believe in me, trust in me. Well, how can you make it so we don't have to believe or trust? Really? So he answers. In reference to the manna from heaven, you Jews, that God gave you, I'm going to tell you the real answer. I'm going to let you in a little secret. You want to know, Jews, how you can tell is that the bread that God gave back then is actually a portrait of the bread that God is giving you right now, and he's standing in front of you. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's standing in front of them. And for the first time, they actually say something smart. Sir, give us this bread always. What a good answer. Finally, you get it that the only thing that can operate in this situation is for King Jesus to give life to his people. And so the proper response is to throw themselves at his feet and say, give us help. Give us life. Give us satisfaction. Give us contentment. Give us joy. Give us forgiveness. Give us all things and always because we cannot do it. Give us this bread always. And that would be, I mean, it's a profound statement at this point. Jesus follows it up with really 35 through the end of the chapters, kind of one unit, or let me through 59. I've broken it up because there's so much good content in it. Give us this bread always. What does Jesus say? I am, and again, remember that's that Greek construction that is designed to remind them of the name of the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. Uh, Jehovah Yahweh in the Old Testament, when it says L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's the to be verb in Hebrew. When it's translated into Greek, it's not just I am, it's I, I am. That's what he's saying here. I, I am the bread of life. I am referencing God Almighty and I'm the bread you've been looking for. Whoever comes to me 
Not to themselves, not to their neighbor, not to the things the world offers, not to the passing pleasures of the culture around. Who comes to me will not hunger and will never thirst. You have a group of people standing in front of them whose life is marked by scarcity. They don't ever have enough of anything, enough time, enough money, enough food. They are poor by every standard that we could imagine. And he's saying, if you just believe in me, you'll never lack. But there's a problem. Verse 36, I say to you that you've seen me, but you don't believe. The Jews have yet again, they're viewing him, but they're missing the point. They're they're looking for bread. They're looking for temporal now things and not eternal things. And so what is the good news? The good news is this, that Jesus is the king of salvation. All all that the Father has given to Jesus, Jesus won't cast out. If, If they're his people, he will bring them in. He won't lose them. He won't forsake them. He won't miss them. It won't be like, you know, some of us in our car keys where we get ready to go and it's like, oh no, mission impossible. Where are the keys? There's no mission impossible. Where, where is, you know, so-and-so? He doesn't lose his people. He knows where they are constantly. So that he should, in verse 39, never lose, uh, not lose any that is given to him, but they will be raised up on the last day. Even to that kind of capstone statement in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What do we do with a passage like that? We explain it. Okay, that's good. But honestly, uh, the idea of bread that lasts forever is not that appealing because I like the tasty food I get to eat. What do I do with this? Well, brothers and sisters, the reality of the world is that people have not changed. And those people that were constantly filled with dissatisfaction and longing and emptiness, that condition has not changed at all. For those of you that were converted later in life, you remember that moment, don't you? You remember what life was like where day to day your existence was filled with an, an incongruence inside. You felt like the gears of your soul didn't line up and you felt wrong. You felt empty. You felt hollow. It is important for us as believers, those that have been believers particularly a long time, that we do not forget that. Because honestly, the culture in which we live is so unbelievably preoccupied with the now and not thinking about the future. Evangelism has to change in some sense. The church has for years in America, and in many ways excellently, been preoccupied with, with Christianity is about getting out of hell. And that's true, absolutely it is. Christianity is even more about knowing Jesus now, being transformed now, 
Not waiting only until heaven, being transformed now so that even now my life is not marked with scarcity and constant disillusionment and discontent and brokenness the way that it used to be. So that a year from now, you can look back on this time and say, I'm not the same person. Look at what the bread of life has done to me. I'm already overflowing with contentment a way I wasn't a year ago. I'm not miserable the way I was a year ago. I'm being transformed. And I would give a warning for some of us. Some of us in here have been believers a very long time. And as we've been believers a very long time, we find ourselves in a position very similar to that of the Israelites. Where we're saying, you know, I kind of want to go back to Egypt. I kind of want to go back to some of those things that I used to do. Some of those ways that I want to live. Some of those pleasures that Egypt tried to offer. I want to go back to the way it used to be. And I would tell you, friends, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't believe it. Life was not fun then. Don't go back that way. And lastly, for some of you, you're sitting here listening to the sermon and you're going, you know, I actually relate more and more to the crowd and not to the disciples. I relate more and more to those that have their life marked with dissatisfaction, have their life marked with this constant hungering, this constant longing, this constant need to have something. Something I don't have. And I would tell you, well, Jesus has given you the answer. Believe in him. Find mercy in Him. Now, this belief is not one of those simple things where it's like, oh, I woke up and I believed. That is part of it. But belief is a cultivated habit. It's an active thing. It's an intentional thing. It requires effort. That we believe and trust in the Lord. For why? Well, just a handful of chapters. This Savior, this bread of life, is going to break bread at a table. He's going to feed it to them and say, oh, by the way, remember this. This is my body. This is my blood. And just a few short hours after that, he's going to die. So that they might be forgiven and so that all of these promises would be yes and amen in King Jesus. That he would provide all of the hope and the satisfaction and the contentment of life. For he is our bread. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would feed us. Feed us Christ. Help us in our unbelief, for we are such weak creatures. Stir us up in our faith, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.